Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, bankers and honey badgers, welcome to Clarifying Catholicism. You're watching part 11 of a series on the history of the ecumenical councils according to the Catholic Church. Today we are covering the First Lateran Council. Much of this information was gathered from Joseph Kelly's The Ecumenical Councils of the Catholic Church, a history. So if you want an in-depth dive into these topics, please make sure to pick up a copy of his book. To see the rest of our episodes, check out our playlist in the description. Without further ado, on to the show. You'll notice that whereas many of the preceding councils dealt with struggles between East and West, the councils of the early second millennia primarily focused on clerical reform and running the Roman Church. By the late 9th century, the empire created by Charlemagne was not in great shape. It suffered from weak leadership and military assaults from every direction. The papacy, trying to stay afloat in such turbulent times, aligned itself with powerful families who could ensure a stable income of money and resources, leading to what many historians call the Dark Age of the papacy. Rival families often arranged for the deposition, mutilation, and murder of popes. Between 882 to 904, a span of 22 years, there were a dozen different popes. Basically a pope every other year, most of whom were corrupt, greedy, miserable men whose lives met rather gruesome ends. But that's a topic for another video. In 955, Pope John XII assumed the papacy, when an Italian prince began attacking the papal states. A German named Otto the Great, sought to become king of Germany and offered to protect the Pope in exchange for his blessing. Sound familiar? Pope John approved, and in 962, Otto was crowned the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. This new partnership was a resounding success, but John eventually started worrying that his new ally would meddle in his own affairs. John led a plot against Otto, it failed, and Otto had him replaced with Pope Leo VIII. This exchange emblemizes the awkward power dynamic that would characterize papal-imperial relations for the following centuries. While technically speaking, the Pope had the power to appoint emperors, they also relied on those same emperors and their families to sustain their existence. The outcome of this was that often the king would select the Pope in advance and force their election. In return, the Pope would bless the emperor's hand-picked successor, and integralists wonder why I don't take them seriously. In the year 1002, Henry II assumed the office of emperor. Taking notice of the last couple centuries of papal debauchery, he sought to clean house a little. He recommended clerical reforms that would improve the morality of high church officials. Henry III had a similar attitude, and when in 1045 there were three claimants to the papacy, he called a council and declared all three as unworthy installing a pro-reform German bishop, Clement II, instead. Clement's reign was followed by three other pro-reform popes. Leo IX deposed several bishops for simony, or basically bribery, and Nicholas II decreed that bishops, rather than political elites, would elect popes. This time period was also marked by a formal schism between East and Western Christianity. The Patriarch of Constantinople, Michael Cerulius, resented the Western Roman Church, claiming that many Eastern churches were being too Latinized. After a series of diplomatic failures between him and Rome, he excommunicated Rome in 1054. Today we recognize this as the Great Schism that divides Eastern and Western Christianity, but back then it wasn't really seen as a big deal. 
people generally saw it as just another excommunication levied by East against West, which was a common practice that you've seen throughout this series. Anyways, in 1073, Pope Gregory VII came to power and blamed much of the corruption of the papacy on lay rulers. He wisely recognized that by depending on kings, emperors, and noblemen for protection and authority, the papacy became too easily swayed by temporal affairs and was continuously tempted into falling into the same vices that lay rulers did. So he took an important step. Before Gregory, bishops were given authority by the king, a practice called investiture. The pope sought to end this practice, but the emperor Henry IV would not have it. Henry and his German bishops refused to abide by this decision, and Gregory responded by deposing him as emperor. Henry apologized and agreed to abide by the pope's wishes if he was reinstated. Once he was reinstated, he reneged on his word and was deposed again. Henry responded by invading Italy. Gregory had to flee to southern Italy and died there. Pope Paschal II's solution was that the king could give a bishop his temporal power, but not his spiritual power. England and France accepted this, but Germany was not exactly happy to oblige. Pascal chose the coronation ceremony of the new emperor, Henry V, as the perfect time to break this news to Germany, which responded by arresting the pope and forcing him to back down from his position. Two popes later, Callistus II decided to finally enact the investiture reforms at an ecumenical council. Shortly before the council met, Henry V finally relented and agreed that the right to invest bishops with their spiritual authority came from the Pope alone. Callistus wanted to solidify this development though, so he hosted a council in Rome at the Lateran Cathedral, the Pope's Cathedral, in 1123. It was the first ecumenical council to be called by the Bishop of Rome. This council not only addressed the investiture controversy, but it ensured nobles would not fight on certain feast days, gave the uh, Crusaders, who we'll talk about next episode, an indulgence, and protected the families and goods of Crusaders and pilgrims. Still, the council's most notable achievement was depriving the monarchy of its ability to invest bishops with spiritual authority, a major first step towards curbing corruption in the church. The Lateran Council is an excellent example of how church councils not only address theological matters, but logistical ones as well. This tendency would characterize many of the medieval councils, as you will see in future episodes. Thank you very much. God bless you.